I can count on one hand how many robot demos that I've seen of an advanced robotic system that worked the first time. They always have to restart it and they always apologize. And it's, you know what I mean? It's like robotics is really difficult. I joke that like I will worry about robots waking up and taking over the world and, and killing us. You know, the first time I see a robot demo that works without having to start over. Welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We're coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in technology, business, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere, and each week on the show, we talk about some of the most interesting tech and business stories and issues in the news. My guest this week is Ryan Kahlo. He is a University of Washington law professor who specializes in areas including privacy, artificial intelligence, and robots. Ryan, it's great to have you here. Todd, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. We also wanted to have you on because you are one of the organizers of We Robot, which is an annual conference where scholars and tech practitioners discuss legal and policy questions related to robots and artificial intelligence as well. And it's taking place this year in Seattle at the University of Washington from September 14th through 16th. And it raises a ton of interesting issues. And Ryan, I was actually looking back this conference has been held since 2012. It started at the University of Miami, if my research is correct. And I looked back and there was a post that year on Boing Boing. Do you still read Boing Boing? <laughs> I, I do. Well, I, you know, I, I love everything that uh, that Corey and Zenny and yeah. all the folks do. But yeah, no, they were really generous in the early days of We Robot. They, they always posted our call for papers and dro drove a lot of traffic our way. So we're grateful. There was a post introducing We Robot on Boing Boing back in 2012, and these were the questions they posed. I thought they were really interesting. What happens when good robots do bad things? Who's responsible? What ethical and legal constraints should be considered at the design stage so that the robotics industry does not become the next full employment opportunity for lawyers? What kinds of public policies should we put in place to encourage the smart deployment of robots? striking the right balance between encouraging innovation and safety. So Ryan, here we are a decade later in general, and I know you can't address each one of those things individually necessarily, but how far have we come on these legal and policy questions related to robots in the past decade? We've come very far. We've come very far indeed. And um, I'm immensely proud of the role that this conference has had in that. So first of all, there are many state laws related to robots, to drones, driverless cars, robot delivery. There are federal rules uh, governing some of these same technologies. The industry itself has just grown year after year. It's a, it's a, a multi-billion dollar global industry, of course. And, and many of the kinds of questions that we predicted uh, over the years have in fact come up. In fact, these days, it's sort of hard to find any kind of issue to talk about at the conference that's not grounded in a real world, world hypothetical. It's just a few examples. You know how like Dolly and, uh, and some of the other AI art generating tools have come out in recent years from OpenAI yeah. and elsewhere? We talked about that really early. You know, who, who owns the, the copyright in something like that? You know, think about that woman who was killed a few years ago in Arizona by a driverless Uber. We talked about that. We talked about the difficulty of, um, of handing off control between an automated system and a, and a human being. Time and again, the kinds of issues that we've delved into at WeRobot within just a few years have appeared uh, in reality. And, and, the, and the wonderful thing about the conference, I would argue, is that as a consequence of the community that we've built, 
there are expert people out there able to give unbiased expert opinions to members like of the press like yourself, uh, to regulators, to judges and the like. And so I, I, I'm really proud of the community for that reason. We're talking about the We Robot Conference, and folks can check out the agenda and the registration at werobot2022.com. Ryan, as I was reading through the different draft papers that are going to be presented at the conference, it struck me that one of the key themes is unintended consequences still. One of the phrases that really stood out to me in one of the papers was prediction as defamation. In other words, an algorithm will make some kind of prediction about what someone's tendency or probability of doing something like defaulting on a loan or something like that, and that could end up being defamation. And it's my long way of asking, where does the overall issue of liability and responsibility stand in 2022? Can you give us a sense for that landscape? Absolutely. Robotics are confusing to both criminal and civil liability for a variety of reasons, okay? One reason is simply that the decision that the engineers made of how the robot should behave in a particular circumstance is removed in time and space from the actual accident, right? And so, for example, with the Uber uh, car, what the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration found in its um, investigation of that fatal accident was that it stemmed in part from decisions that Uber engineers made you know, months prior when they were developing the technology, decisions to turn off certain safety features to set thresholds at a particular place. And so there's, there's that remove, you know, who was actually physically there when, when that car struck that woman? Well, there was a woman behind the wheel. And that's, in fact, who ended up absorbing the, at least the criminal liability. Uh, but there were decisions that were made you know, prior. A second way in which robotics is confusing to liability is that sometimes with robots, particularly artificially intelligent systems, the machine behaves in ways that no one really predicted and, and, and maybe even couldn't have predicted. And that's really going to be a barrier to, well, criminal liability requires almost always that you do something on purpose. Right. Intent. At least knowingly. Intent. It requires intent, what we, we, call, we lawyers call mens rea, right? Uh, the intending mind. So if, if the robot does something that you didn't predict, well, it's not going to be criminal liability, right, uh, typically. Even with civil liability, where you're just suing another person in court civilly, that's what I teach at, at University of Washington is torts. Even there, the law has an expectation that you at least could have reasonably foreseen this outcome. And so a lot of the things that we're seeing are behaviors in these systems that are emergent. And so uh, courts would be hard hard-pressed to attach liability for something that not only did you not foresee, but you but you couldn't have foreseen. Those set of issues continue on a decade later, and they will continue on another decade from now. You mentioned the progress that's been made is remarkable in part because you see legislation and regulation that has emerged over the past decade, shaped in part by some of the themes and the research that have been presented at WeRobot and similar conferences. How would you grade policymakers and legislators in the U.S. in particular on their ability to craft these laws and regulations? Todd, I would say it's quite a mixed bag. Last year, I taught this intensive course at University of Toronto, like a one-week intensive course, and it was called Robot Law, Mistakes Were Made. <laughs> the passive voice on purpose, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the last decade or so, we've seen some real missteps. You know, for, for example, 
the state of Nevada and its with its pioneering driverless car law defined artificial intelligence and hence autonomous vehicles in such a way that it swept in arguably swept in any car where the computer was substituting for what the driver did. And the reason that it embraced that vision is because Google lobbyists came to it and said, hey, we're building a fully autonomous vehicle and we want to know what the rules should be to test it out in Nevada. And hey, you could be this wonderful um, frontier for this technology. And they said, oh, that sounds great. But once the automakers got wind of this and they realized that they might have to follow all these special rules, like put up a $10 million bond or or have a special license plate with an infinity sign and all these other things that that they had to do, just because their Lexus can self-park or that has adaptive cruise control, you know, the legislature ended up having to, to take the first state definition of artificial intelligence, redact it, repeal it, and then write a new one. Because this technology is evolving and there's many different stakeholders and there's lots of different potential configurations. And another thing I'm looking at closely and which will absolutely be a, uh, there's even a paper at the at We Robot that's about state lawmaking of, of robot law, which is, I think, going to be fascinating. But another example is, you know, all those robot delivery stuff that you all cover, these little robots with wheels, these little carts that go to um, on campuses or they go on the street and whatever they are. Um, like Amazon Scout is a good example. Like Scout and Star and Starship and, you know, the, 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 a bunch of them, right? Well, what's been happening is that these companies who have already developed a product have gone to legislatures in states or cities and said, once again, hey, we're the future. Everything's going to be robot delivery. Don't you want it now in the future? <laughs> and then they ended up helping the legislatures draft laws. But these laws were specific to what the company happened to be doing. So they said things like, you can have a delivery robot so long as it has six wheels, weighs no more than 90 pounds, can see, you know what I mean? All these different kinds of things, exactly literally what the company was doing. And what's the problem with that, Todd, of course, is that automation, robotics, artificial intelligence, sensors, actuators, these are all just affordances. They're all just technologies that enhance our capability to do something. And we don't know what the right configuration is now for robot delivery. And so when you enshrine or you reduce to law a particular configuration, because it happens to be what had a commercial advantage at the time you talk to somebody, um, that's a misstep too, right? What we should be doing is asking ourselves, what does this new technology afford? And what is the best law and policy infrastructure for robot-assisted delivery? And so I think there's been a big learning curve. And I'm, I'm more and more hopeful because the policymakers I talk to are more and more sophisticated. And some, like the folks at the Federal Aviation Administration, have been doing this so long that they really know their stuff. But mistakes were made <laughs> along the way. <laughs> We're talking with Ryan Kahlo, a University of Washington law professor and one of the organizers of the upcoming conference, We Robot. We'll be right back. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included.
Welcome back. You're listening to GeekWire. We're talking with Ryan Kahlo, a University of Washington law professor who specializes in areas including privacy, AI, and robots. He's one of the organizers of the upcoming conference, We Robot, which is being held this year at the University of Washington from September 14th through 16th. And you can find out more at werobot2022.com. Ryan, we were just talking about the legislative issues that can come up. And as you mentioned, that's a subject of a paper at We Robot this year. It was written by Daniel Hinkle from the American Association for Justice. And he does bring up that issue of the companies themselves taking advantage of the fact that they are the subject matter experts in these topics. And they're interacting with legislators primarily who don't know the subject of delivery robots as well as they do. It raises this fascinating question of how legislators in particular can keep up with this stuff enough to make sure that they aren't taken advantage of by the companies that will eventually be governed by the laws that the legislators create. How does that shake out and and where are we in that whole evolution? Well, that's a great question and a deep puzzle. You know, years ago, I wrote this paper that was called The Case for a Federal Robotics Commission. The premise of the paper, which was for a series by the Brookings Institution, was that we desperately need far greater expertise in cyber physical systems within the government. And that attracting that kind of technical talent to the government is a non-trivial task because there's not that many folks, and the people that there are often go into academia or they go into industry. And so my thought was, let's have a single agency that's a repository of expertise and have it be like the NSA was once upon a time and NASA, where you go there because that's where the people who are doing the cutting edge work are, you know, just in the same way that DARPA is able to peel people out of industry and out of academia. It'd be very prestigious. And it's very prestigious and you're surrounded by people that are really good at what they do. You can, of course, do it other ways. You can distribute that expertise across all all parts of government and, and that's being done. But this idea of mine was just, I'm agnostic as to how it works, but we desperately need it. Um, since that time, there have been an, a number of promising signs, including under the Obama administration, a very well-resourced Office of Science and Technology Policy, which which fell away with, with President Trump and has come back again under President Biden. I believe that we ought to refund something called the Office of Technology Assessment, which was uh, founded in the 1970s, and it existed to help Congress regulate technology better. And it was full of subject matter expertise, but it was defunded in the 1990s during the Gingrich Revolution. We should bring that back. I like initiatives like Tech Congress, which you know bring in like uh, you know I had we had a great student Catherine Pratt who was came through the Tech Policy Lab, which is who was hosting We Robot, and she is an electrical engineer by by training, a PhD, and she decided to go to Congress for a while and help members of Congress regulate technology. And so these are really promising signs, and they could happen at the federal or the state level. Um, I know that uh, that the judiciary both state and federal, has been more and more interested in hearing from technologists. And so there's that permeability these days that there wasn't before. But again, the purpose of the conference is actually to bring in interdisciplinary voices into dialogue with one another. You know, half of our program committee is roboticists. You know, half of the attendees come from uh, disciplines other than law, at least. 
WeRobot is meant to become one of the kinds of spaces that gets technologists' interest peaked in law and policy. Brian, what are the biggest issues on your mind as you head into this conference as one of the longtime participants and organizers? Are there questions that are on your mind that you hope are, if not answered, then at least addressed in a significant way at this conference? Yeah, I, I mean, I hope so. But I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about what everybody else is thinking about. I'm, I'm thinking about, um, are these systems safe? Are they fair and equitable and inclusive? Does the government have adequate expertise? You know, how do we think about these, these work products that look like they're coming from machines, but in fact are still coming from people, but the people are, are hidden in the picture or there's more of them than what you expect. And so and these are the themes that I find endlessly fascinating that recur within the conference. It's be hard to pick favorites, but there are any number of really interesting papers. There's the one you mentioned about whether or not predicting something about a person and then being public about your prediction can constitute defamation, or whether defamation is limited to factual statements of a certain nature. You know what I mean? Um, yep. uh, th- which has got a commentator who's uh, she's my colleague and she's a defamation law expert. There's the paper that you mentioned about how the sort of sausage is made when it comes to state robotics law. There are papers on the uh, the ethical uh, culture around artificial intelligence. There's papers about police use of robot dogs. Um, in fact, a great thing about the conference is that we we have live demos of actual robots, including this year a Spot, which is Boston Dynamics robot right. dog. We'll be walking around the law school. And that's one of my favorite things about the conference is that these big, sophisticated, advanced robots are are right there because I think that there's no substitute for actually seeing these things in person up front and seeing what they can actually do. And so that's an important component of of the conference. I think that session and that paper that you're referencing there, it's by two researchers from the German Research Institute for Public Administration. I think that one wins my prize, at least as the most compelling title. It is Canine Police Robots, Strolling Drones, Robo Dogs, or Lethal Weapons. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's <laughs> a little sensational, I guess you could say, but, uh, but some, you know, that's uh, not, maybe not very German. Uh, <laughs> but those are two new uh, participants that I'm really excited to welcome here. We get submissions from all over the world, from every populated continent, usually. And we also have... Um, uh, some scholars like uh, Eric Hilgendorf, who are coming from other countries to comment and papers from Edinburgh and papers from, you know, all over the United States. So we're, yeah, we're really, really excited. I, I also like, um, in terms of titles, mind you, yeah. um, America's Next Stop Model, uh, Algorithmic <laughs> Discouragement, which is the idea that if a regulator catches you doing the wrong thing with your machine learning model, with your algorithm, that they can actually make you throw it away, destroy it. And there's also a paper, by the way, about what happens when your robot dies, like what happens when it's no longer being supported and you can't find the parts to replace it and it just stops working and and you feel attached to it, right? I mean, that's that's what I'm really excited about as well. <laughs> so I have to say that title actually caught my attention too. The problem with that title is it doesn't come across audibly as well as it looks in print, the America's Next Stop model, which is of course a AI reference, the very nerdy inside AI joke. But that phrase was new to me, Ryan, 
algorithmic disgorgement. And so mm-hmm. I looked it up in the paper. It's fascinating, the, this whole idea that if your algorithm is based on bad data or biased data or does something that it shouldn't be doing, the FTC increasingly has the ability to go, okay, we're taking that thing out of your product. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's right. So think about what the power of the Federal Trade Commission, what power it has, right? It could fine you, although it's got to go through a lot of legal hoops in order to fine you, the Federal Trade Commission, especially after a, a recent Supreme Court decision that limited their ability to seek fines. But if you're under investigation, they can put you into a consent decree where you agree to end the investigation and hence the government scrutiny by coming to terms with the government. Um, and as part of that consent decree, increasingly what the, what the government is asking is you give up the model. You give up the model, which, you know, imagine if, if it were Spotify or, or, or Netflix. I mean, that is a death penalty for those businesses. You know what I mean? And so it makes you, it makes you really have to be very, very careful about how you deploy algorithms. And so these researchers are looking at the um, sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly around around the, the idea that you can force a company to disgorge or destroy its algorithm that is doing harm. We are talking this week with Ryan Kahlo, a University of Washington law professor and one of the organizers of We Robot 2022. We'll be right back. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. We're talking this week with Ryan Kahlo, a University of Washington law professor and one of the organizers of the upcoming conference, We Robot 2022. We've been talking about We Robot, and GeekWire also has our own conference coming up on a broad range of tech and business issues, the GeekWire Summit on October 6th and 7th in Seattle. And one of the speakers that we actually just confirmed this week is Chris Ermson, the CEO of Aurora, the self-driving car and truck company. And if I could benefit from your expertise here, as I'm thinking about our own conference, what would be the key things that you would want to know from somebody like that? Somebody like Chris, who's dealing with these issues right now, like what are the key things that should be on my agenda as I'm talking to him? That's a great question. So the things that I think about with respect to driverless cars In fact, we have a white paper I could share with you on this at the lab that's called Driverless Seattle. But on the one hand, you're thinking about, is this system reliably safe? And is it safe not just driving around, you know, Capitol Hill, but is it safe under all conditions in all circumstances, right? It's the the edge cases that really get you. If I had the opportunity to ask Chris questions, I'd ask him questions like, how are you all in rain and snow? And what does the system do when you come across construction, you know, or you see something weird, you know, you know, you know how to avoid somebody crossing the street with a dog. What about a llama? Right. I mean, it's, it's these edge cases that really end up being really, really difficult. 
And, uh, and what we've seen is, is very strange emergent behavior, for example, in San Francisco, where dozens of driverless cars you know, wound up causing an enormous traffic jam because they all behaved in a strange way on, in a particular intersection, and, and nobody predicted that would occur. So that's one thing. And the second thing is, if we really do get driverless cars, let's say if we really get automation and transportation to work reliably under all conditions that we can imagine. That has the potential fundamentally to re-architect the American experience, the city, the family. We live in a world, for better and for worse, I would say, where families own a car or two and everybody's driving everywhere and parking where they, where they go. But if you have driverless cars, do you own cars? Or does transportation become a kind of service where you just summon a car when you need it and it's not yours? Similarly, do we need parking downtown if a car can just drop you off and go somewhere else? And and what happens to city revenue from parking, which is so critical to cities like Seattle? It's these second order effects that I find really fascinating. And I think there's a common assumption that like with driverless cars, like once upon a time, you drove the car, right? And now the car drives itself, almost like once upon a time you used a stick shift and, and, and now it's, now it's uh, automatic, you know what I mean? But it's not like that. This is a potential sea change. And you could ultimately imagine designing vehicles extremely differently, changing ownership models, uh, insurance, even the physical layout of cities. And I, I'm interested in, in, in Chris's vision for that. I know from doing a little bit of research that one of the anecdotes Chris talks about was from his time at Google working on their self-driving car when the car got pulled over by the cops and nobody knew what to do. What happens when a self-driving car gets pulled over by the police even now? Yeah, there's video of a car being approached by a sheriff that just keeps moving because it doesn't understand why would it that needs to stop and it it has no social context. I mean, I I think that, that the models that I'm seeing What they tend to do is the system knows when it doesn't know something and it phones home. You know, it's a kind of ET approach. It's like the system sees something weird is going on. It doesn't know quite what to do. And all of a sudden there's somebody um, who can remote in. And that seems to be, you know, if you're not going to have somebody physically in the car, that's the next best thing. And I don't think that's almost ever going to go away because I don't actually think we're going to eliminate these edge cases. But every single thing that happens is a learning moment for the engineers. And the next time one of their cars gets pulled over, all of a sudden there's an algorithm that can sense, you know, the particular pattern that a, that a police car light makes or that telltale horn sound that they make when they're pulling you over. Not that I've ever been pulled over, mind you, but um, I hear that sound. <laughs> the one thing about Chris is I actually teach a tech law and ethics course and I use the letter that he received from the Department of Transportation years ago to Chris as an example of how companies can get in front of of issues of law and technology, because that was masterful what they did. Google waited until there had been a significant investment in driverless cars, not just by them, but by other big companies, so that there was a lot sunken into it, but not so much that it was impossible to walk away from. And then they just casually approached the Department of Transportation and said, hey, you know, almost like an afterthought, like it never occurred to them. 
you know, some of your regulations seem to stipulate that there's a person involved here. Like it says that the steering wheel has to be this far away from them and this kind of thing and this kind of thing. And, you know, gosh, we don't really have a person in that car. Right. You know, what, what, how should we think about this? And they had done a lot of handholding up to that point and a lot of education up to that point so that the government could appreciate the utility of these cars and also understand the technology somewhat. And lo and behold, of course, as they would have predicted, the government came back and said, yeah, we see that. And in fact, we're willing to, to make some adjustments to the rules potentially, you know, so you should go ahead. And so it was this really interesting pageantry there. I'd love to, to know more about how that unfolded from his perspective, but I teach the letter that he received from the Department of Transportation. It sounds like there was an awareness that this was an issue by Google, that Google knew that it was an issue, but rather than having a direct confrontation, they were able to kind of slip it in almost incidentally even though it was pretty fundamental <laughs> to what they were doing. Fundamental, yeah. It was a classic example of asking for forgiveness, not permission. Or well, they were asking for permission, but they were asking for permission at a point when, you know, there had been three dozen articles in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times and everything else about it. So it wasn't catching anybody by surprise, right? But if they really thought that the government could come back and say, no, these rules are what they meant, you know what I mean? And there's no, there's no wiggle room. We're not going to go anywhere on this. Um, well, then they never would have pursued it in the first place. So they must have done some soft touches and they must have done some handholding uh, along the way and gotten assurances that they'd be able to have these things eventually be lawful. But what I find interesting is the choreography in public where it's like Google just, you know, kind of calling up its buddy and saying, Hey, you know, I, I just thought about this uh, just now that our cars, you know, are, that the current rules fundamentally foreclose the business model that we're sinking millions and millions of dollars into. You know what I mean? And then having the person on their line being like, oh, that is interesting. Let me look at it. You know what I mean? It's just, I like the pageantry of it, the, chore the uh, choreography of it. Yeah. Oh, so you're saying there's no one sitting in the right. driver's seat. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, oh. Let and the rules say, yeah, you know, it's just so funny. And <laughs> and the government comes back with this really detailed list of what they're willing to change and what they're not. It's a, I would argue, sort of now classic example of emerging technology navigating legal rules. I'll be sure to ask Chris about that. Thank you. Please. I'd love to hear the answer. Yeah. Ryan, if you were giving a talk to startup leaders at this point, people who are starting their own businesses, are there specific issues that are on this agenda or on your mind as it relates to algorithm and legal policy legislation that you think will be at the center of people's debates and discussions and frankly, business challenges over the next three to five years? Gosh, there's so, there's so much. I mean, so, so first of all, I think that there's been a reckoning in AI or there, there's an ongoing kind of reckoning in AI about what the technology can and can't do. And I think we need to be really sober-eyed about what kinds of problems AI can fix and what kinds of values value can add, right, on the one hand. On the other hand, we also need to acknowledge that, you know, artificial intelligence can cause real harms to, to real people, to vulnerable people. There's a great paper by a longtime participant in We Robot. She's just up the street, so to speak, at, uh, at UBC, University of British Columbia, named Kristen Thomason. And her paper is about reimagining what safety means as an, as an objective of robotics. Typically, safety is limited to physical safety, you know, the idea that you would just not get hurt. 
And, you know, there's been a lot of advances there. I mean, for example, a simple thing that really matters is it used to be that when a robot, people can't see my arm, but I'm holding it up. I'm holding my arm up. Uh, but it used to be that if power were cut to a, a big, heavy robot, then the actuator, the arm, wherever it was, would just simply fall down. And and that made it so that, and if anyone's head or, or limb were in the way, it could get seriously injured when the, when the power was cut. But a development occurred, and it's pretty standard now, where the machine stays in the same posture, in the same pose when it's cut, right? There's been improvement in sensors, improvements in uh, machine learning and classifiers and detectors for safety purposes. So we're getting there. We're getting we're getting more robust on the safety. But you know, this scholar invites us to imagine safety more holistically, in terms of mental health and safety from stigma and safety from a range of different kinds of things, right? And so, if you're investing in robotics today, you know maybe you're aware that your product has to be physically safe, and maybe you're also aware that privacy and security are important. That is to say, you don't want to be invasive from a privacy perspective. You don't uh, want to have an insecure product that hackers could get into. But I think that if we're going to be introducing robots into people's everyday lives, especially in vulnerable places like hospitals or homes or, or whatever, we need to attend, as Professor Tomlinson argues, to a wider range of societal harms and a broader definition of safety. It seems really complicated for anybody wanting to start a business in this area if they have big ambitions to be able to pull something off that doesn't have unintended consequences. I always say to people, you know, robots are hard. Robots are hard. I don't think I've ever seen, or I can count on one hand, let me say, how many robot demos that I've seen of an advanced robotic system that worked the first time. You know what I mean? It's like they they always have to restart it and they always apologize. And it's, you know what I mean? It's like, it is really hard. Robotics is really difficult. And what people see on, on YouTube or on television is like the 20th attempt to do that particular thing in the 20th iteration. And so it is a powerful technology, but I joke that like, I will worry about, you know, robots waking up and taking over the world and, and killing us. You know, the first time I see a robot demo that works without having, you know, without having to start over, you know I mean? It's just, and yet we keep trying. I mean, an amazing thing about robots. And one of the reasons that I continue to study them is that robotics and automation have been around for an incredibly long time, since antiquity. And yet, they're always heralds of the future. And we always think of robots as being what's next, what's in the future, even though we've been living with them. I mean, they've been in our, they've been in our factories, they've been in the sky, on the ground, you know, for decades and decades and decades. And they originated in antiquity, in, you know, Arabic and Greco-Roman and antiquity. But something about them signals the future to us. And I find that endlessly fascinating. The conference is We Robot 2022. You can find out more at werobot2022.com. Ryan Kahlo is a University of Washington law professor who specializes in all of these areas. And he's one of the organizers of the conference. Ryan, thanks very much for speaking with us. Oh, it was my honor. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the GeekWire podcast. Kurt Milton produces and edits our show. Daniel L.K. Caldwell composed and performed our theme music. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop, and we'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast. <laughs>